And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. forget the men who died who gave that right to me and i gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today cause there ain't no doubt i love this land god bless the usa Well, good Sunday afternoon, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. And today I've got a, it's going to be a fun show because I've got a couple of special friends on. Dennis Young is a gentleman I met um, quite a few years ago now uh, through two very, very good uh, friends in the freedom movement who uh, uh, happened to introduce us when he was on his way through. Uh, incidentally, uh, Thumper, uh, Dennis is also a big Harley guy. And uh, you guys will uh, have a great time together because uh, he loves riding his Harley as much as you do. So, but with that said, uh, we're going to be talking with him and Juliet Engel, who both are world travelers, they're both people who have uh, seen every side of the dark side of the intelligence community, if we could call it that. That's kind of an oxymoron. But uh, the intelligence community and see where a lot of the bodies are buried. And that's going to be the discussion today. We're going to be connecting the dots between all the crap going on all over the world right now and who's behind a, a large part of it. So with that said, Dennis, good to see you, my friend. It's been a long time. Welcome to the show. How do you not sing along to that intro song? Yeah, well, that's it. That's <laughs> it. I mean, honestly, we know that things aren't quite as free as that song makes it sound, but we all want to get back there, and that's why we use that as our opener for the program. It isn't necessarily completely reality anymore, but it's what this country used to stand for. And that's why we why we sing it. Dennis, you're looking good, buddy. It looks like you're uh you're not uh starving to death or going through any too uh, too many hard times. It looks good. <laughs> I've been pretty good uh, the last two years since I last saw you. Well Let's kind of get started. I want you to kind of introduce yourself a little bit to our audience. But uh, we first started talking because you you really uh, you started out as a kind of a teenager, a kid that kind of grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, kind of like I did. And we had an immediate affinity in that regard because we both kind of 
started out our lives uh, pretty much doing battle with anything that uh, decided it wanted to stand in our way. You joined the military right out of high school. You ended up in uh, Baden-Baden, Germany. You ended up eventually, you uh, got into special forces, were in the uh, uh, MPs and got into the intelligence community almost by accident. Let's uh, maybe tell a little bit about your story and how, uh, how how you got to the point where you're at right now. Ooh, it, it is really incremental steps. I, I mean, first I joined the Army. I was an infantryman and uh, went to Europe during the Cold War in the 80s and uh, was in a mountain unit. And... Uh, I mean, that was, I mean, it was hard. It was like, you know, a mountain unit in the army is a very difficult job, mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't emotionally or mentally destructive. So uh, after I left Europe, I got out for two years and then I got back into military police and I had no idea that military police in Canada, uh, massive intelligence arm. They're, they guard embassies, you know, instead of Marines guarding embassies in the U.S., it's military police that guard embassies in Canada. And, of course, that's embassies are a hotbed of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I joined the military police, they, they sent me to Gander, Newfoundland, which is you know, in the middle of the Atlantic. And, and <laughs> nobody right now can complain about the weather until they live in Gander. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I have to tell you, uh, two nights ago, it was 35 below here. So uh, <laughs> trust me, I, I still can complain. <laughs> so there was, unbeknownst to me, there was an operation going on there. Uh, it had been stopped because, um, you know, eventually when you do human intelligence, the, the chances of getting busted is high, especially in this. So what was happening was the Russians in the early 90s, they when they were going, when the Soviet Union was going back or was bankrupt, they put more money into their intelligence service. And that's like when a, when a predatory animal is wounded, he's more dangerous than when he's not wounded. So uh, these planes were flying. It was Cuban and Russian airplanes. And they would fly from Moscow, refuel in Shannon, Ireland, refuel in Gander, Newfoundland, and then make that trip down to Havana. Now, they were wiring their planes for sound. And um, there's also, I don't know much about this, but there were satellites somehow involved and coordinated in this, and I can't really speak to that. But they would, their goal was to grab pictures and voice and marry the picture to the voice as they flew down the that east coast of the United States. And so the CIA, of course, had a problem with that, and they wanted to come to Gander and do this operation, and you know, all the diplomacy went on, and they said, okay, the, a Canadian, the Canadians will do it, but we'll be subordinate basically to the NSA. Mm -hmm. So... At, at this base in uh, Gander, we had communication research people. It's, they just pick off signals all over the world. And in that group, it was called 770 uh, Communication Squadron. There were uh, U.S. Navy sailors 
in working along shoulder to shoulder with our people. So they had all the information that way. This takes a funny turn. So what would happen was these planes would land and an RCMP car would have a little yellow blankie on and he would pull up to the aircraft to guard it, to the Russian or Cuban aircraft to guard it. And uh, the crew would disembark and, and go in for coffee and donuts or whatever. And my the guy I worked with, we'd jump out of the cruiser and he would look at the outside of the aircraft and I would go inside and I'd look at their flight plans, that sort of thing. And this went on and it got really hectic. For some reason, they wanted every single plane gone through. Going, I don't know if it was pressure from the Americans or what was going on there. But eventually, uh, you see, we weren't allowed to take firearms on there. But I had heard a story where one of the operators before had been grabbed by these guys and they tried to take them to Moscow for debriefing and that didn't sit well with me, but this guy had been some kind of martial arts expert and fought his way out of there. And I thought, you know, I'm not a martial arts expert, but I do know how to use one of these. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I wasn't allowed to check out my military pistol to do that job. So I had my own pistol and I just brought it. And uh, because you know, tried by 12 or carried by six sort of, mm. <laughs> sort of idea. <laughs> so, uh, one day, uh, I was going through the flight plans and I just, this is after doing this, I don't know, 25, 30 times and I'm going through and I'm just looking and I'm, I've learned to read flight plans and I'm taking pictures of them and I just feel a presence behind me. And I turned around and the biggest Russian you ever saw was standing there. <laughs> and so I just kept talking to him in English and tell him, you know, I'm with a local media and uh, we're interested in this. <laughs> and I knew he didn't understand anything. And uh, I went to get out of the cockpit, which he filled up and to see what his reaction would be. And I had my hand on my pistol at the time. And uh, I, I made a, just a, gentle step forward towards the to getting out of there and he moved aside and i said Poof, and i just walked off i got back in the cruiser got my friend and uh and uh they had did they done that on purpose they left an until a russian kgb that was retiring i found out all about him later and they left them there because they thought they knew what was happening again because it was cyclical and so that was kind of the end of the mission. But the the interesting part is so we have U.S. sailors working in this uh, communication center. And when that plane lifted off, the Cubans were terrible at it. They would yap everything they seen, everything they did. As soon as that plane left, they would talk. The Russians were much more disciplined than that. But uh, these uh, communication people, uh, they give me the background on this Russian, and he was just a retiree. And um, oh, so so we were reporting through. So I made reports all the time, and they went up through political channels. So the Canadians were telling the Americans, "There's nothing going on. We've we've got our intelligence officers on there, and there, there's nothing. Everything's cool." But the Americans were also receiving reports from these American sailors through their channels. 
and they were working on the communication intercept. So they knew when I was on the plane because basically the Russians and Cubans told them through their voice conversations. And so that was kind of to see where we were on the operation. So these, these, uh, the, the American sailors were reporting one thing, and I was reporting another. And so this resulted in a visit at three in the morning by some guy. I lived in, so Ganders, I don't know, four or 5,000 people. You can be anywhere in five minutes. They called me at three in the morning. The They said they were the RCMP, and it was to do with my operation template, it was called, at the airport. And... They had a few questions. And I said, well, that's great. I work from eight to four. <laughs> Give me a call. And uh, they said, well, we just have plane tickets. We're going through. And uh, if you could just come and answer a few questions, 10, 20 minutes of your time, that's fine. And so I said, well, what, what about my boss? Does he know about this? He said, well, you're doing it, not your boss. So, so I said, okay. I go down there and these two guys are standing there. And right away, they look like gangsters in suits. And, and uh, I was still kind of half asleep. And they started asking me about template. And uh, I said, I don't think I'm good to talk about this in this place. And then I said, do you have, do you have uh, ID? And, and uh, they kind of looked at each other. And the guy showed me a, like a, a CIA star. And I said, no. Oh. And then I said, you're just flying through. Can I see your, your ticket? And they showed me, and it was from Langley. Mm. And so uh, they just wanted to know. So I was in this pickle. So do I tell the truth, you know, for this, for, for you know, just for professionalism, or do I lie to these guys and kind of like, you know, I just thought these these are at the time. I thought these were kind of the good guys, and so except I went, they look like gangsters. Except they look like gangsters. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, they said, "Okay, we'll make this easy. the The flight plans are there cameras and wires. Did you see that?" They said, "Don't even say anything. Just nod your head or, or just say no." So they said, uh, "Cameras and wires," and I not in my head and I just wanted to get out of there and I did but when I went and told my boss about this the next day holy he got on the horn and it was I don't know some kind of diplomatic hurricane going on or something and my boss came back and said those guys could have been KGB confirming what you were doing <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, holy jeez, I'm going to be hung for this. And then eventually months later, but, you know, they had tickets from Langley. Would the KGB go to Langley and jump? Didn't seem. Uh, so anyway, uh, whatever went on there in the background, I'm sure was very interesting. But uh, the, the whole operation stopped right there. Mm -hmm. And I was busted anyway, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you got caught, so sure. Yeah. That's just that's one operation I did for that was about two years in uh, ninety two, ninety three. Mm -hmm. Now you you uh and I don't want to get into too much detail, uh, because we've got a lot to cover, but uh you went to Bosnia. That was your last mission, your last assignment is uh 
uh, Army and Army Intelligence. Uh, you were assigned to Bosnia in what, 90, 96, 97? Uh, well, Christmas 95, I watched all the bowl games in the, it's called uh, Air Movements Unit, the AMU. Uh, <laughs> and I was just waiting. And there was a, mm -hmm. a truck and a Jeep on our C-130 Hercules aircraft. And I was the other part of the cargo. Mm -hmm. And we kept getting bumped because of something happening on the ground in Bosnia. And they didn't say what it was. And so I flew over with these, uh, I was just another piece of cargo, you know, flying over there. And I got involved in a terrible human intelligence operation. That, you know, this is, the, this is the thing I like to explore, is there are people without souls on this earth. I firmly believe that. And they can do horrific things, and it doesn't bother them at all. But I wasn't one of them. Mm -hmm. When I started dabbling in things where good people were getting killed, it really, really crushed me. And make a long story short, they, well, the, you see, the, the CIA flew the Mujahideen from Afghanistan into Bosnia to fight for the Muslims. Now, I, I still don't really understand why the Americans were so intent on getting in with the Muslims. You know, we took the Muslim side in Bosnia all the time. The Serbs, we beat the crap out of all the time. But the Muslims were special, and we solved it. And I, I, I don't know the link there. So we hunted the these Mujahideen that were, and I didn't know any of this at the time, but um, so these Mujahideen were living in 40-man units, like, I mean, like in this one case was in a schoolhouse and we only caught them. I think it was on uh, a U-2 flight. We we're still using the U-2 over Bosnia, the spy plane. And they had caught a bunch of guys playing soccer at night outside a schoolhouse. Mm. And, and it was, and so we got the message, go there. What's going on? Why aren't they playing in the daytime? You know, and it was Mujahideen. Well, weren't they? We we flew them in there, but then they got in there, then they just kind of disappeared, right? They just uh, it, took they, off. They were being stored. Oh. So, yeah, they were. And I heard, no, I only ran across this one, but I know after I left, they were finding parcels of these people all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what what exactly was going on. Don't forget, I wasn't like a, a Colonel McGregor or Scott Ritter. I wasn't at the top of the chain. I was at the very lowest part of the chain. So I I just basically knew what I was doing and not much more. So uh, anyway, we found these guys, and I had a human intelligence, uh, an asset, a man, just a great man with, you know, four kids, and he worked in the field for $30 a month, and he had to walk there, and but he spoke English really well. And so we gave him a bunch of bullshit promises about how we could help him and do things and give him a job and all this. We had no intention to doing that. And so he started telling us about the town. And the, the brigade was very interested in 
what we knew they were in the schoolhouse, but you know, what kind of layers of defense did they have? Were there, were there people in other houses across the street? And we wanted to know, could we safely surround that schoolhouse and that's it? Or would we have people behind us? And so this human intelligence guy that, that helped me out and finally told me that, no, there's nobody in the houses, just people. And, uh, so we surrounded it with steel and then we started negotiating and this, it was so, uh, and then this, we didn't know if we we're going to have a shootout with these guys or, you know, what was going to go on. And then these Americans show up with a Bosnian Muslim general and this guy, <laughs> you know, you can't hide the American South accent. You know, there's nowhere. And he he's wearing American fatigues, running shoes, a hat with no rank or anything on it, longer hair, and he's got that southern accent. And he says, well, we got, uh, looks like we got ourselves in a bit of a pickle. And so he just walked right in to the, to the schoolhouse, him and the general, and we could see him through the windows laughing. And uh, they walked out. And uh, said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring a bus because uh, now Sarajevo Airport had been destroyed. So flying them back out from where they flew in from wasn't going to happen. So we had to negotiate with the Croatians to fly them from Zagreb. And they said, not one of their feet will touch our ground. And if they do, we'll kill them. And so the, the Muslims agreed we brought Mercedes buses with uh, blackened out windows and we'd load 10 of them on and then they would go to the airport and we escorted them right through. And they, they maybe took two steps in Croatia. They pulled up right beside the ramp of, of an aircraft and these guys got off. And so 10 guys got on and 40 guys got off. <laughs> This this Brit that was with me on the escort, he said, well, how did the Germans ever lose a war with magic buses like that where you put 10 people in and get 40 out? I don't even know what was going on there. And so we did that, and we did it over uh, maybe two weeks. We got rid of all these guys, 10 at a time, and uh, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's... You don't even know what happened to them, then. But, well, I know that they were flying to Switzerland, and then they would go to Libya or Afghanistan for training. Mm-hmm. And we were financing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I had found out before this that we're Al-Qaeda. I mean... Oh, were, yeah. My translator knew more about intelligence in Bosnia, probably, than a general. But they don't talk. But mine did talk to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, well, near human asset ended up being killed as a result. Yeah. Of so then I was in a bit of a panic because, you know, during this ring of steel, he ran up there. He ran towards our formation. And I thought he was going to get shot. So I, I told everybody, no, no, he's coming for me. He's with me. And uh, he comes up and he pounds his hands on the tank. Like he could do something about it. He said, you're not going to kill these people. I didn't agree to any of this, you know? And uh, I said, no, no, nothing's, you know, nothing's going to go wrong. We're just going to 
They have to fly out. It's complicated. And anyway, I played chess with him. I, his kid sat on my knee and then, and I started panicking and going to my boss and saying, look, he's in a small town. Everybody knows that he was talking to us. I said, we got to get him out of here. And we should fly him to Canada. You know, like the expense of flying a family to Canada is nothing compared to the operation. So I thought, let's get rid of him. And it was just cold shoulder. No, they said, these people, they give me these speeches. These people have been killing themselves and everything. And I said, yeah, but we, he went out of his way and put his life on the line for us. And anyway, they didn't do anything about it. And they, somebody killed him. And then, you know, so now there's four kids and a mom out there and there's no system like we have. I just, it, it really damaged me. Well, we're getting, we're, we're getting kind of a synoptic view, but I, you know, you and I have talked about this for hours and hours on end. And, and basically, just about everything in your life when you were in the military and doing intelligence work, uh, just about everything in it uh, told you that the system, uh, that so-called intelligence is rotten from the head down and that the whole system is absolutely corrupt with bad people who will do just about anything to get their way. And it doesn't really matter if it's uh, moral or ethical or not. And matter of fact, nine times out of 10, it's the exact opposite. Well, these, I mean, the CIA attracts sick people. That's where sick people go. It's like, uh, you know, why do pedophiles want to lead a Boy Scout troop? You know, mm -hmm. it's it's the same sort of thing. You And power, like really sick people are attracted to power. And this is this is the problem. It right now is because we have a whole lot of decent people, but they're not really into the power thing. So what do we get? We get the other people to fill in that void. You know, there's all kinds of good people who don't want to run for politics because they're good people. They don't want power over other people. But so because they don't run, we suffer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a power deficit. But the reason I put you on with Juliet, now I want you to meet Juliet Engel. Juliet is an absolutely astounding individual. She grew up, her, her parents, her grandparents, her uh, her uncles were uh, part of the CIA MK Ultra program. They were there before it was the CIA when it was the uh, you know the oh. SAS or OSS. Oh, I'm sorry, OSS. And um, she grew up in that in that environment. Now, Juliet, I, I don't want to. I know this is a little bit embarrassing, but you're the only person that I know that'll talk about it. She grew up when she was five years old, her father literally sold her, uh, her physical body to the CIA MK ultra sex magic program. And, uh, she was raised, uh, as a, a sexual tool of the CIA. Uh, Juliet, I'm, uh, I'm introducing you to, uh, uh, to Dennis, because I think you guys are going to have a tremendous story to share with each other. 
Anyway, Juliet, welcome to the program. Thanks. I was fascinated by what Dennis was saying. And I'm not a sexual tool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's Yeah, that's for sure. But you grew up, I grew up in, uh, in a system that was totally corrupt from top to bottom. Uh, in a Ultra. My in fam a family. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe tell a little of your story uh, so Dennis can meet you, too. Okay. Um, I was sold by my father when I was six years old, and I, I did write a book about it, Sparky Surviving Sex Magic, which took most of my life to write. So, I mean, I, I sort of say, eh, casually, I wrote a book, but no, it was a big thing to write that book. And um, uh, so I grew up in a program of indoctrination, and basically, you, you talk about the people in power, especially in the CIA, who have no souls. Well, there's a whole culture. I, there must be thousands of people like me. I came from a family, an elite family of, of uh, uh, descended from royal lines who uh, were in the intelligence services and in the, and in the uh, upper core military forever and uh, putting their kids into indoctrination programs. Um, I was born in 1949, so I went into the program in 1955, and um, into an MK Ultra program called uh, it was called the Monarch Program, but it was secret. That was secret. It was the butter, the uh, Bluebird. They called it the Bluebird. But uh, our first test was they gave us a little secret butterfly, and if we ever told anyone or showed anyone that pin, we were told we would be killed. So, I mean, you, it's the beginning of secrets and living a double life. And, and I, I, my time was split between various uh, indoctrination centers and my family home, um, which ultimately was a good thing. Uh, but we moved from place to place to place because the schools would catch on to the kind of abuse and the physical abuse I was going through. And But as soon as they sent someone, we moved to a new district and... And so it was all all very choppy. But the ultimate goal uh, was very clearly from the beginning, they wanted my soul. And uh, they would tie me to a wheel. And I, I've, Dan, since I've started talking out about this, I've met several people who were in the exact same circumstances and also tied to a wheel and spun around while they encant in, various things and it goes faster and faster. And the idea is you can make the torture stop. You can end the pain, you can end the spinning. You just, you surrender your soul. And if you surrender your soul, you see green. So you're, you're trying to get to green. So when they talk about the green movement and, and, and uh, green energy and green, that's the, your soul. The, to them, the wow. color of the human soul is green. And when the soul departs, it's green. And when there's the obliteration of humanity, it'll be green. So um, I don't have a clear picture of how all this fits together. Nobody sat me down and said, hey, little girl, this is what we're doing to you. Um, but this occurred within uh, sort of an extended family and, and all these people fed into the CIA. And if, the, if you gave up your soul, I mean, it would have been like, uh, like a Hillary Clinton. You know, I would have gone into high-level position. I would be a department secretary. I would be uh, secretary of defense. I mean, who knows? But I didn't. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I escaped when I was 17, set out on my own life and um, put myself through school and medical school, started a practice, started a family, and then was invited to Russia. Um, and as soon as I left, I forgot everything. I couldn't remember my childhood, which is the first, first hint to anyone who has been through this. If you can't remember a thing about your childhood, it was probably pretty bad. And um, so I, I went to Russia as a guest of the Russian government to help reform maternal and infant health care in Russia. And uh, I won't, I'll, I'll let it stop there, but I was in an interesting position because clearly the people there, my, my uncle was one of the founders of the NSA. So he and two of my cousins were in the original Arlington Hall, the first 20 people who started the NSA. And uh, my uncle eventually went on and founded Five Eyes in, in Britain and uh, started the GCHQ in Britain. So I think uh, the people that I met in Russia at first knew who he was, knew more about him than I knew about him. And uh, so I was invited into a lot of a lot of um, interesting places. I mean, factories. Uh, I was invited into the their secret space program. I was invited to like uh, view their lasers down in Crimea. Um, all kinds of things. And I never told anybody anything. I think it was part of the part of the training. Um, I didn't tell the Americans what I was seeing, and I didn't tell the Russians what I was seeing. So I just, I just never said anything, I just uh -huh. took it all in. Um, but I I was constantly uh, immersed in both sides of the, of the intelligence world, for sure. And I think because of my family background, it was very comfortable. I'm more comfortable there than, than anywhere else. And I, I could see how the Russians were infiltrating the American embassy. And I did tell the embassy. I, I told everyone. They wouldn't believe me. Um, I also made the predictions about what was happening in Ukraine all the way back in, uh, this would be 1994. You could mm -hmm. see the American goal was to create a society which they could control. They wanted to do it both in Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine went for it, Russia didn't. Um, although the effort was huge uh, in both both countries. They wanted a orange revolution in Ukraine, and it did take them three times in nearly 20 years to get it, to get that war started. Russia, they wanted a birch revolution. Tried it several times, it was rejected, but Ukraine went down the, the woke path. And um, I pointed that out to them and the embassy. <laughs> it was, uh, nobody paid any attention to me. So it didn't make any difference if I said anything or not. But I've written this, I've written all of this up in my books and now it's it's old history. But I, I, think, I think all these things are important going forward because the people that came from the MKUltra programs, you're saying there's lots of people out there with no souls. That's who they are. Largely, I think they were moved into military intelligence. They were moved into the agencies and they were moved into the senior executive service, which is really actually controls our government. Nobody knows who controls them. They are unfireable. They, you can't get rid of them. They destroy everything they touch. They are soulless. They have more money than anyone else. And they get huge, like multimillion dollar retirements. 
who are these people? Well, I think those are the people coming right out of the MK Ultra programs, mm-hmm. minus their souls. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, if if you have no soul, if you go into it and you have no soul, that's fine. But th- if the, you do have one, then that all that green wheel comes into. It. You know, yeah, they they want to take it out. It, yeah, they have to. So you, at some point, you have to lose your soul, whether you have one or not. And if you ever see, you have the, to give it up willingly. Uh, that uh, you know the the wheel you talk about uh, in John Podesta, uh, Hillary's campaign manager. Supposedly, yeah. when you first open his doors, the first picture you see is a child on a wheel. I don't, yeah, and, I know what that is. No, I've never seen that, but it, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it's it's just horrible, horrible. You know, the, the, I don't know if it's too early to come into this, but it's all about frequencies. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, the Tesla, what what do we have to do to a person to knock them off the their current frequencies and put them on a different frequency? Yeah, and beauty has a frequency, and ugly has a frequency, and so these people immerse themselves in this all this ugliness, and of course they're they're ugly people, and a lot of them are like extremely unattractive to look at, and like ugly is is deep. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Dennis. Uh... With with Juliet, and and this is something Juliet might want to uh, amplify on, but um, when she was growing up in this program, interestingly, uh, not only the CIA was involved, but also the U.S. Navy, and uh, that connection. Uh, Juliet, would you like to maybe expand on that a little bit? Because some of the things that you saw that the torture, the rapes, the, the uh, uh, well, you even uh, talk about uh, cannibalism. This was stuff that was going on pretty openly between the CIA and our uh, military, our Navy in particular. Can you maybe address that? Yeah, I, I uh, was terrified of MPs. Um, it was the MPs that controlled us, and these were Navy MPs. So like when there was a Saturnalia or a sacrifice or ritual abuse, the MPs would gather up all the children, take us to the site, and they would guard the doors and stop anyone that, that tried to escape. And uh, these these were scary, scary, like... I never thought they were quite human, you know, not, now I'm telling you this, I, mm-hmm. I was 10, 12 years old and, uh, I, I considered them monsters that could read into your head. I think they could to a certain extent. And when you say they were highly involved in intelligence, I think they probably were, and they had the ability, at least I thought they did to like, look right into your head and know what you were thinking. Um, yeah, they were terrifying. And, and yeah, it was Navy, Navy facilities, Navy parties, cocaine parties. And, and uh, my parents would take take me to these parties where they were exchanging big barrels of cocaine for Navy boxes full of weapons of all kinds. And um, 
Yeah. And, and my mind, I can't pull it all together. I think it was too traumatized. So for me to make sense of all this, I can relate it, the parts mm. that I can remember and see clearly, but it'll take someone who was not involved in a program to like take all the pieces and say, okay, this, this is where it fits. Like just now you saying the Navy being involved. Um, yeah, the Navy was involved. I, I can't imagine that it could, I, I didn't know where these guns were coming from, but there were so many of them and they were exchanging it. They were Cubans at these parties and there were Russians at these parties. So the Russians, these were the first Russians that uh, I met. So like when I was mm -hmm. eight, nine, 10 at these cocaine drug uh, exchange parties. And and that's when we were still uh, in the Cold War, obviously. That was back in the in the 50s. So this is not, uh, you know, after the fall of the, the Soviet Union. This was clear back in the 50s when we were obviously uh, fighting the Cold War in a very, very meaningful way. Yeah, I was in Southern California in Imperial Beach, Laguna Beach, all coastal towns. My father was in the Navy, Naval Reserves, and uh, was going to Navy meetings twice twice a week. All his friends were, were Navy. Uh, so this would be 54, 55, 56, 57, in that period of time. But that was going, they would bring the boats right up on the California coast, right through the waves, mm -hmm. right onto the beach. And, and that was going on all night long. Everybody knew about it. Imperial Beach hasn't changed. It's, it's Imperial Beach is the closest you can get to the Mexican border. And our apartment, when we lived in Imperial Beach, was right on the Mexican, the Tijuana sewer. So 500 feet from the Tijuana sewer was the Mexican border and the Tijuana bullring. So my bedroom looked out on the Mexican border and you could see all kinds of things going on in that no man's land between Imperial Beach and Tijuana. Wow. So none of, that, right. none of that is new. No, it's not new, but what we're going to do now, and I'm, uh, I'm going to go uh, foring into uh, the areas that we really want to talk about. And, and Dennis, you've, you've traveled around the world. Uh, you have friends who are Russian, uh, very good friends. And so does Juliet. I think I told you uh, she spent 20 years there and worked with the uh, uh, Russian civilians on and even the government to a certain extent, uh, trying to stop some of the human trafficking. Uh, Juliet has a little different perspective about Vladimir Putin than what our mainstream media has. And I think in your conversations with your Russian friends and your experiences, you have a very similar uh, outtake on Vladimir Putin. Juliet, would you talk about, uh, in, in fact, at one time you actually sat uh, next to Putin and met him at an airport when he was kind of, a, uh, I guess, uh, early in his uh, uh, time when he was still with the KGB. Well, in 1999, he was being brought to Moscow as one of Boris Yeltsin's first uh, secretaries, along with uh, Sergei Kirienko and uh, Boris Nemtsov. So sort of like the future leader of Russia was going to be picked from one of those three. And he was in Polkovo Airport 
in the waiting area and I was in Pukalo Airport. We were both being interviewed by uh, Sky News, which is British television. And he was very polite, uh, spoke spoke some English. Uh, the reporter came and said, well, who should I take first? And he said, oh, take her. You know, she's much better known than me. <laughs> I had to laugh so hard now. <laughs> At the time, it was probably true because I'd been on the news a lot and nobody knew who he was yet. But um, he he was just straight, rock solid. You could tell, tell very, very strong and uh, you could believe what he said. So um, he was the first Christian, Orthodox Christian, ethnically Russian, Slavic president of Russia. All the others are Hazarian, uh, usually Ukrainian uh, Jews. So he was the first, the first Orthodox Christian um, president. And that meant a lot in Russia. And the, one of the first things he did was to rebuild 30,000 uh, 30, churches, synagogues, mosques, um, all with the new constitution of Russia, all religions were legal. And, and they had to make it that every religion that had been a religion at the time of the revolution, because all these strange new age things started popping up. And so they said, okay, if you were a registered religion at the time of the revolution, we will support, you know, you building, rebuilding your church, your monastery, your mosque. And so that, that made a tremendous difference. And um, the name of his party is Adinstina Russia, which is Russia first. <laughs> yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Americans have been trying to run candidates and and pull color revolutions and and uh, insult him. They they insulted him even when he was just a first deputy. They realized what a threat he was because they were supporting uh, Boris Nemtsov, and uh, he was much more uh, woke. Uh, he was much more amenable, flexible, malleable. Putin was not at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was the one the West favored. Uh, unfortunately, he was assassinated walking across a bridge. So by a bunch of Ukrainians, actually. Mm. But um, so that, that was my experience. And I did work closely with many, many people in the Russian government who are now top of the Russian government. And uh, it's rock solid. It, Putin is not going anywhere. Now, my Russian friends, they like they don't. There's this visceral response a lot in the West when you even say Russia, and they don't. It's that's not their feelings. Their feelings are like, "What are you guys doing? What's wrong with you? Why why are you pushing towards our borders? Why are you sending in troops? Why are you that that they just." They're basically flabbergasted. I agree. I agree. And and knowing Russia and having been there, it makes absolutely no sense. Russia has no extraterritorial territorial ambitions. It's strictly defensive. So Finland and Sweden arming up for a Russian invasion, they know better than that. Honestly. I mean, I've worked with all those countries very closely. They know that isn't true. So they're just lying. Uh, uh, to build up arms or to make somebody happy or to take a bribe. I don't know, but their response is ridiculous. And uh, well, well, you know, the history of Russia, 
So the most powerful forces on the planet have attacked Russia from all the way from the Khan, you know, the Polish Lithuanians, the Napoleon, Hitler, no one's managed to do it. I don't know why we think we can. Oh, we can't, can't possibly. And, and the idea that Russia wants to, Russia, a lot of the reason that it took so long for Russia to start this military operation in Ukraine is that they don't want Ukraine. Uh, the overwhelming sentiment that I heard in Russia after the breakup with the Soviet Union is, thank God we, we don't have to deal with Ukraine anymore, because they were constantly stealing the gas. The gas pipelines run across Ukraine. They would steal the yeah. gas and then scalp Europe and then blame it on Russia. So Russia had to pay all these fines and 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 they paid it because Ukraine just stole everything. So um, they were also, there were quality control issues. Ukraine was selling nuclear weapons and arms that had been stockpiled there for destruction, but they weren't destroying them, they were selling them. I mean, the Russians knew all this and were just so glad they didn't have responsibility. So the idea of going back and, and taking any part of Ukraine that isn't originally Russian is not what they want. I mean, they do not want to try it. It's been thousands of years they've had to deal with this group of, of unruly people. It's not going to change. So I think they'll stop at the at the at what they consider, which is, should have been Russia, the, the Kharkiv um, down into uh, Odessa. I mean, that's all Russian. You go there, it's yeah. Russian speaking. I've been there too. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Dennis, um, you... you uh, you said something early about the soul, and that's something that uh, uh, Juliet has told me constantly about her friends in Russia. They are worried for that Americans are losing their soul, that we are giving up our soul. And uh, Russia has gone very, very strongly pro-Christian uh, and reaffirming their Christian foundations since the fall of the Soviet Union. And we're going the other way around. And they are very, very concerned about us losing our soul. Would you uh, maybe amplify on that, Julian? Oh. oh. No. We'll give you a chance too, Dennis. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it's it's true. And I think they're right. I mean, they're they're pointing out the... Satanic statues and state houses. Um, I, all of this is like when the Bolsheviks were were moving in and, and taking over Russia. The, the lawlessness, the disregard of churches, the destruction of statues and property, and and uh, like this this move to to put immigrants in people's houses. And I mean, that's what they did. They they just moved people in and and mm -hmm. took over took over property, took over monasteries, took over synagogues, uh, destroyed everything, and and out, then, then outlawed religion. And they could say, they could see it happening to us, you know, like all across Canada, churches are burning, you know, the, the terrible smears against, against uh, uh, churches and religious schools in, in Canada, you know, the same thing is, is happening here that's that's an attack on the soul of a people and um yeah I, they're right they're right I, i've had this discussion with people in the russian duma you know we might need their help to get our soul back well the, the 
you know, um, Putin said right in an interview, he was asked him something pretty blunt, like, you know, what does America need or what's wrong with America? I can't remember the question. He said, they need to find God. Yeah. That's what he said. I thought, well, I'll take that advice from anybody. But these Bolsheviks, they were ahead of their time, if you want to call it that. They were Antifa before Antifa. No, they, they are Antifa now. The same families, the same people, the Ukrainian, Hazarian, Ashkenazi radicals that took down Ukraine, took down Russia, uh, and now they're basically taking down Israel because these these are the settlers. They talk all the time about the settlers. It's taken over the Shabbat farms and uh, taken over Golan Heights and and have been killing Palestinians, burning olive groves, driving them out of their territory. A lot of that and, and defiling the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Who are those people? These are Hazarians from Ukraine, but their families are here and their families are here creating a lot of influence um, in our politicians and our parliament. So it's they are the Bolsheviks. That's the Bolsheviks. And when Putin, as a Orthodox Christian Slavic nationalist president, took over Russia, huge threat. I mean, the Bolsheviks were were shuttled aside and pretty much shoved down into the Ukraine. Well, and and um, Juliet, that's the whole purpose of this conversation is to uh, make people realize that you know the the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, the 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 people who uh, were in Russia, they've moved into the United States. They've moved around the world, and um, anybody who's a nationalist now is a threat because uh, Putin's a nationalist, Trump was a nationalist. Um, you know, um, Balasario in Brazil was a was a uh, nationalist. Uh, Mali, now in uh, Argentina, uh, he looks like he's a, uh, a uh, nationalist as well. Anytime somebody starts to stand up and say, wait a minute, we don't want to be part of a big Marxist uh, worldwide globalist cabal, we want to have our own identity and be a nation and just mind our own business and leave everybody alone. They're the ones that are getting attacked. And and it's always by the same cabal. Well, this there's another angle to this, uh, Juliet. I don't know how from you know the, the Khazarian Empire basically died in the tenth century, I think. And was it not the I don't know what you called the Russians in the tenth century, but did they not they were instrumental in in crushing the Khazarian Empire. Yeah, it was the Rurik dynasty that that destroyed them, Saint Olga, and uh, they because they were practicing Satanism and doing yes. all. Well, the they the uh, Rurik dynasty um, Christianized Russia. That's why Olga is Saint Olga of Kiev, and and uh, so they became Christians and they conquered the Hazarians, the pagan Hazarians. We had a big temple somewhere in uh, in Ukraine. I've never been able to determine exactly where, but yes, they they practice human sacrifice, child sacrifice, basically everything they're doing right now, and and uh, so the Ruriks captured their temple and forced the people. They said, "Okay, you're going to have to make a choice. You can't remain the way you are. Either you become Muslim, 
or you become Christian. Well, then the there was a small population of Jews, real Jews, Edomites in Ukraine. And they said, wait, you guys have a third option. There's 500,000 of you, 50,000 of us. You can convert to Judaism. And that's what they did. So they aren't ethnic Jews. They are Turkic uh, nomads. Right. And they aren't Semites, um, although the Edomites are Semites. But most of them are, are uh, these these tribal pagan people. And yeah, it was the Rurix that, that uh, defeated them multiple times mm -hmm. and uh forced them so into the pale of settlement which is which is uh a a band of land that goes from the baltics to the black sea and the kazarians were not allowed to live or do business outside of that pale of settlement so when you hear the expression beyond the pale that's what that refers to hmm. interesting the, the edomites are, are they are they the Sephardic, or how does that? Well, the Edomites would be the direct descendants of Esau. So in, in the Hazarian hierarchy, you get the curly-haired, curly-red-haired, blue-eyed Khazarians. Those are the Edomites. Actually, they aren't Khazarians. They're Edomites, but they're, they're true Jews. So they are Semites. They're descendants of Esau. The, the uh, rest of them are, are uh, Turkic people. And uh, I, I'm not sure what their descendancy is. I think it's mixed, but no, they're not. Uh, they wouldn't be Sephardic. They wouldn't be. Uh, that's why they're Ashkenazi. Yeah, my friend. I've been to Israel a few times, and my friend was in special units there. And uh, he said we left Judea, little brown guys, and we came back as six foot four white guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that Israel. I, I've, I've been reading, following their their news about uh, and, and before this Al Aqsa flood with Hamas and now accelerating into Hezbollah, they were having a tremendous amount of difficulty with the uh, Jews from Ukraine, the Hazarians from Ukraine, who were coming in, just taking over people's property, moving into their houses, killing people, burning their trees, and. Um, acting like uh, conquerors and claiming a right of return. And the, the Israeli Knesset had determined that tens of thousands of these people had no right to return, that they weren't submitting uh -huh. people. They had nothing to do with the Holy Land. They were Ukrainians. So um, since the fracas with Hamas, I, I don't know where that's gone, or or uh, I don't think any of them were necessarily in the, in the IDF, but I... Uh, Israel, Israel is is. Uh, I, I spent several years going back and forth uh, between Russia and Israel, and Israel just seemed like a, a country that was going to pull itself apart because of all these conflicting. Um, there's the secular uh, Jews, there's the Ashkenazi Jews, Orthodox Jews, all these different sects and. And they had a tremendous human trafficking problem. That's the reason I was going there, is that they, they were one of the worst countries in terms of, of human trafficking from Ukraine, children and young women from Ukraine and Russia. And the other two were Germany and the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, um, Julia, tell 
Dennis, a little bit about your work with uh, the Angel Coalition and some of the things that you were doing in Russia with the uh, different uh, orphanages and all. Kind of explain that whole tragedy, if you would. Yeah, well, I was working with the maternal and infant health care. I was in a lot of children's hospitals and then followed that out to orphanages and then discovered how children were being uh, purchased from orphanages or recruited or um, tricked into taking jobs overseas and then disappearing. And I followed some of these uh, girls and and uh, I, I followed a bus full to Norway and uh, found out that a lot of them had died there in Norway and were just buried. They were all called Natasha. And um, so I, it was just very, very wrong. And, and People are always asking, well, what do you care? You know, <laughs> you're an American. What do you care about what's happening to Russian kids? And I realize now it's because of my own experience of having been trafficked and abused and sold and 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 having all these experiences. I couldn't quite remember, but it it definitely I thought, well, they're helpless, but I'm not helpless. So um with the help of of USIA, which was a, an agency in the State Department that actually did a tremendous amount of good work in the 1990s, um, I got support to start a coalition of Russian organizations to start working against human trafficking. And that's what became the Angel Coalition and eventually involved over 100, 100 countries, 140 different organizations, and rescued people all over the former Soviet Union. Union, North Africa, Europe, um, into um, Central Asia. Are you familiar with the numbers, uh, you know, say, you know, drug trafficking versus human trafficking? And they say that the drug trafficking that the CIA does is a drop in the bucket compared to human trafficking and organ trafficking. And now I'm hearing that... Uh, <clears throat> seemingly wounded soldiers in Ukraine are being found without organs. And that some of them are... Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and the culprit is the... They said there's always... Uh, um, the, the Red Cross and the Doctors Without Borders are always thick around there right after the battle. Hmm. A Red Cross oh. for sure. Doctors Without Borders have had mixed experience with, uh, depends on the individuals involved, since a lot of those are volunteers. But, yeah, Red, but, Cross, but... Red Cross has always been complicit in all kinds of things. Um, yeah. My focus was because I was vulnerable in all of this and living in Russia and traveling around all over by myself, all these villages, and I kept my focus strictly on uh, preventing the trafficking and abuse of children. But of course, you can't help but run into the same groups <laughs> that are yeah. doing the drug smuggling. We, we call it drugs, rugs, bugs, and and uh, actually it was uh, Shelley. Oh. I'm Louise Shelley from the track hmm. center called it the routes of drugs, rugs, and bugs. Um, because it's medicine trafficking, drug trafficking, child trafficking. But it's also the same uh, groups that traffic rugs and carpets and move them around uh, Central Asia into North Africa and uh, all over the place. Um, 
So the world started to change for me. I stopped seeing borders and started seeing networks flowing. Uh, and that, and they flow right into the United States. They flow into Canada. Um, I went to the State Department. Um, one of the first things we did, and Dan, this is what we need to do here in the United States, and Dennis, we can include Canada, mm-hmm. is to have a North American survey. So, so create a questionnaire that millions of people can participate in, and it's to measure the impact. Who's being impacted? Who's being trafficked? Where are they being trafficked? Uh, do you know who's who's doing it? Because people in their communities do know. Um, there's a there's I'm trying to get it down to like 20 questions to mm-hmm. to get a, a a a map that we can map out like a weather map as to who's doing what in this country, because that's that's the first step for tackling this. And we can't go to the like the tip office, the trafficking person's office. I was their first grantee. So I was the first to receive a grant to do anti-trafficking work. But but then I came right back to the State Department and said, they're coming here. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, my job was to give the United States a category one absolute clean bill of health. Um, but I didn't. I came back and said, Germany, Israel, and the United States are the three countries that we're finding the most trafficking going on. And I, I knew the, the towns. It was Brighton Beach, New York was a big one, and uh, Virginia Beach, hmm. uh, Virginia. So I, I had the, the contacts, the names, the groups. The, I had all the information, and no one would look at it. Wow. They looked at it, it would have changed their results and they would have had to do something about it. So it was the most incredible, like I'd be sitting there holding up a poster with the data and the information in a meeting in the State Department and no one looking at me. It it was it was um, stunning. But we just continued. We got funding from other places. And uh, since we weren't doing it for money and and we're doing it for for the sake of the people involved, we just kept going. But that's what we need. That's number one. And um, I'm hoping to involve Red Pill Expo in this and uh, Colonel McGregor's organization, Our Country, Our Choice, and uh, Restore Freedom, and uh, the Constitutional Sheriffs of America. We should get the Constitutional Sheriffs of Canada. Um, so that that's first that has to happen that and then we take that information and we create a public information campaign at a grassroots level which costs practically nothing but will have more impact than anything that's done on a national level <clears throat> through any kind of government agency well that uh, sound of freedom movie has got to have had an impact on a lot of americans recognizing that you know, not only is there an illegal alien problem, there's a, a problem of all the human trafficking that is really one of the one of the covers for that whole program. It's also the drug trafficking. It's a combination of these things. And uh, frankly, it's not going to cease until we start openly exposing the criminality and the people who are involved. And yeah, they're right at the top. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't know that that uh, exposing it is going to do anything because we know who's doing it. We, we know that. That information is out there. It's, it's a matter of working below the 
below the mainstream radar mm. to rescue, repatriate, and and rebuild. You know, it's like the, the those institutions are coming down. We know that they're they're crumbling. Um, so it's it's the rebuilding that matters. You know what I mean? It, it's uh, uh -huh. well, we have uh, to wait. Uh, I think we have we can't really act until we have the power to do anything. Like you know, well, we have, have the power. We do have the power. Just like just like we did in Russia, we had no power at all, and yet we wound up with all the power because we just did it. And 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 uh, as as you wind your way, you know, you're thinking like a military guy. You know, you, you need an order to go in. No, actually, you don't. You you come you come from the underneath up, and and, uh, and it's it's declare yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it's great to have that infrastructure and experience and everything, but you know the DOJ can just say we're not prosecuting because we don't have the power to make them prosecute. And that's why uh, putting yourself out there and exposing yourself and risking everything to expose the people who are already exposed, and you know they're not going to, nothing's going to happen to them. Then forget them. Uh, start underneath, slowly uh, building in communities, and suddenly. We're just there like the Houthis, you know, mm -hmm. who expected the Houthis were going to attack Israel. And now they've stopped shipping in the in the Red Sea. It's it's because they are slowly building from from underneath and nobody paid any attention to them at all. And that's 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 where you want to be when you're fighting Goliath, don't you think? The army well, is help us. The State Department yeah. is help us. The, the police departments aren't going to help us. The sheriffs are going to help us. Mm -hmm. Well, and Juliet, you, you know, your point is well taken because uh, up until two or three years ago, uh, the freedom movement in the United States and around the world didn't have a whole lot of traction. And the reason we were there, we were doing the talking, we were working to try to expose this stuff, but people weren't listening. They have been so cheeky because they've gotten away with so much that now they uh, actually do things in our face, and I think it's blowing back. I think it's uh, caused them some problems. They've exposed themselves, and now I think the majority of Americans are starting to realize we've got a problem. And Dennis, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think probably uh, it's the same thing in Canada, isn't it? Yeah, well, I was just, you know, in preparing for this, I, I ran across a, a case in Montreal. It's called the Schreier case. And, you know, the CBC, the public broadcaster here, there is, they make MSNBC look respectable. But they, we had a case of a woman in uh, the 50s that went through MK Ultra in Canada, in Montreal. And it, they, assaulted her or treated her or whatever you want to call it until she was uh, in her nine, ninth month of pregnancy, they stopped it. So she was eight months pregnant. They were still doing it. And now she has passed away, but her son is suing the government. And in some kind of disclosure, uh, he was the fetus at the time and says he was affected by it. I'm, I'm all for him, but, uh, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Well, he he was um, their their MK Ultra was working obviously in Canada, 
Right. And they were fine. The Canadian government was in part financed by the CIA. And this is actually in the CBC report. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's, they, it's in the uh, Church Commission reports from the U.S. Senate from 1976. Yeah. So this was going on in Canada, but the CBC sort of twisted it. Like they said, the the program was canceled in 1963, and then it seems to pop up again in the 21st century because of the war on terror, but it's the Americans doing it and they don't do it that much. And that was sort of the spin on it. Mm-hmm. But but there is a case in the Canadian courts right now about a, a MK Ultra survivor. Mm-hmm. I was very shocked to find that. Yeah, I'm glad to see a, a lot more MK Ultra survivors are, are coming out. I think... Uh... First it was Kathy O'Brien, and then there was mm-hmm. me, and now there's many more. And and I'm being contacted by uh, people who, like me, have been successful in their lives. Um, most people are just totally destroyed by it. But uh, so mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see what what happens. It's certainly a terrible thing, and it's would be very hard for an MK Ultra survivor to like focus focus enough on the issue to uh, be coherent about it. It's extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Have, have you met Kathy O'Brien? I know someone uh, is a mutual friend of uh, of mine that knows uh, Kathy O'Brien. Uh, do, you, do you know her? You actually worked with her? I, I've, I've met her. We correspond back and forth. And she's willing to come on a program if you'd like to do a yeah, I want to. I want to because uh, I, I would just, uh, as a matter of fact, I just ordered her book. Uh, I ordered it as a book on tape so I can listen to it when I uh, take a trip here. Uh, but uh, uh, obviously, there are a lot of people who have gone through this thing, but there are very few people who have had the, the ability to put it uh, in a documented report. Yeah, and none of us can put it all together because mm-hmm. part of the part of the process is they break your identity into multiple identities. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you from my own experience that uh, I can look like I have them all together, but I don't. And sometimes it's uh-huh. it's very hard. I can't even remember one from the other. I have to work very hard to get from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's useful. You know, it's it's a useful skill, but but I don't think uh, I, I look forward to being able to work with other MK Ultra survivors, and I I, mm-hmm. I have met several. So, um, well, Julian, um, we're we're um, we're going to be doing a program with uh, uh, do, uh, with uh, Colonel uh, Douglas McGregor. Uh, we haven't gotten that lined up quite yet. We were planning on doing that before Christmas, and we had, uh, I think Colonel McGregor had a bit of a uh, medical issue, and you did at the same time. I see you're still wearing your brace because uh, you had to have surgery uh, just before we had our program scheduled. But um, I want to try to connect this because I... I uh, there are a lot of people that still want to follow the good guy, bad guy, media 
uh, sales job, snow job on who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's instances where, you know, people, good people are, I think, following some really bad ideas because they're uh, convinced that uh, it really is a, a pretty clear picture. Well, I've kind of come to the conclusion, and Dennis, I think you agree with this. I don't know. Juliet, maybe you do. Uh, if whatever you hear from the the mainstream, whatever is kind of the the talk of the walk that everybody is following, nine times out of ten, that's completely wrong. And uh, what you're hearing as being bad guys are actually the good guys. And the guys that are being sold as the good guys are very often the bad guys. Um, <laughs> let, let's, uh, let's wander into that a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's very clear, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for well. that out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I kind of I brought that up, or I I wandered into that because uh, I I I wanted to have a discussion about that because you know we're looking at you know the possibility of World War Three. We're looking at uh, people putting hundreds of billions of dollars into uh, a so-called proxy war with Ukraine uh, against the Russians. We're doing all these things that are counterproductive for the best, I guess, the the best um, uh, best outcome for mankind. We've got to recognize something, and I've been harping on this for the last 25 years. The world's uh, biodiversity treaty and, and the guys at the very top of the heap are the ones that are telling us we've got to get rid of 90% or better of the world's population or we'll be uh, living in an unsustainable planet. Well, all the crap they're doing is just perfect if that's what your ultimate outcome is. They're so hypocritical. I mean, I was talking to a lady the other day that was going on about there's too many people in the pl on the planet and we need to do something. I said, well, you can start by jumping off a bridge. You're <laughs> <laughs> so... I can tell you that uh, in the MK Ultra training, over and over and over again, that was the mantra. There's too many people, you know. We're covering the world with roads, and there's there'll be nowhere else to go. And the whole idea that the world will be covered with asphalt, and and uh, so it was. I would go around as a little kid, just hating people, mm -hmm. just like why are you alive, kind of thing, which I don't think is normal thoughts for seven or eight year old and and uh but it came right out of the programming so it's been going on for a while uh, this idea of, of eliminating humanity the best thing i ever did was to escape from mk ultra and just like jump into humanity and found out how much how much i loved other people and mm -hmm. and uh how many great people are out there who aren't related to me you know well, another, nothing to do with oh, okay sorry dad no, no, you go ahead. But I, I, what I was going to say is that <clears throat> who are the ones that are paving the world? Who are the ones that are uh, creating all this overdevelopment? If, if we were back on a sound money standard where you actually had to work for uh, your wealth, 
people couldn't just generate enormous mountains of wealth out of enslavement of other people through something called debt. If we actually went back to a sound money program, all these overdevelopment programs probably wouldn't be there. And you look at who's actually done the overdevelopment, now they're the same ones that want to get rid of the rest of us. Yeah. Well, I, I, I sort of think that the that they know that the sound money system is coming back because the the over this hyper hyperapothecation and all this uh, the unsound money the uh, virtual money is is disappearing because the planet can't sustain it. So what happens then? We're going to have mass starvation and they're going to have populations that they can't control because you can't control people who are starving as the French found out in their revolution. You know, if people are hungry and have nothing to lose, then they're attacking. So um, I, I think that now I'm speaking now like I'm coming out of a out of the program. The idea that there's overpopulation, it's unsustainable. Uh, there'll be roads, the asphalt everywhere, nothing to eat, way too many people. The merciful thing to do is to depopulate. So you depopulate through sterilization, through birth control, through, and if that doesn't work, then you know it's going to be mass starvation. I think that's where their their heads are at. That like this depopulation program with mm -hmm. the poison jabs and and all that is is a mercy to uh, the ordinary people. No, not, I, I I think they're nuts. But you know this this is this is from inside their view because mm -hmm. I did spend time there. That's what they're thinking. They think that they're, they are the good and the merciful, and they'll just kill everybody in the least painless, painful way possible. Well, I think some of them, Juliet, I'll agree with that on some people, some of the really, I, you know, the good, useful idiots, uh, the people like my, uh, my father's family that were really nice people, but uh, had the stupidest damned ideas in the world because they lived in a world that just uh, completely uh, flew in the face of reality, okay? But I do think that the soulless ones, and this is the part going back to the soulless ones, I, I don't think they give a damn about anything other than the fact that they want to own and control and have everything for them and their small circle of family or friends and the rest of us, uh, they'll do whatever they have to do to get rid of us. And frankly, after they have reaped this enormous mountain of wealth and all this technology and all this stuff that has made their lives uh, really wonderful, they want to get rid of the rest of us because they don't want us sharing in that. Well, did you know that there's there is a family in Great Britain, in the whole UK, actually, they own most of Scotland, that own more land, more wealth, bigger art collection, more castles, more uh, more of everything than the royal family, and you never hear of them. Mm -hmm. And they and they support this doctrine of only one person per square mile on any of the territory that they have control over which is why most of the UK is, is not overbuilt. It all belongs to this one family. So there is. I think we got a lock up, uh, Julia. Fields. Okay, oh. there we go. What? Okay. Did you lose me? Yeah, we did. <laughs> they might for... have. <laughs>
Uh, I'm unstable, I guess. <laughs> well, not really. Uh, <laughs> so but, anyway, but your network is. <laughs> there are these families, and they've they've been in control. They own huge amounts of of land and property in the world, and that is their philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, no, I... the speaking of sound money, bricks is becoming very huge. Like I think there's almost a hundred countries now that want to join BRICS and the West is saying, well, we'll never go to a gold backed currency. And I said, well, you better, or you're not going to be able to buy anything. Yeah. And, we're, we're in big trouble. And if, you, and if you go to war and with, and you have a stockpile to go of gold to work with every day, that stockpile gets lower and lower. You can't just invent it. Can't just, you know, like Rothschild financed the Soviets, the Germans, and the West and got his war, you know. <laughs> made money off every single one of them. And that, in fact, that was in my, you know, defeat, uh, Defeating Hell article that I wrote, was the fact that it's always the same people that are getting rich off of all the rest of us. And meanwhile, we're dying and bleeding and losing our property and losing everything. And those wars wouldn't even happen if it wasn't for fiat currency, central banks, and the ability to print money out of nothing and then create debt that we have to pay for. The other thing, it's going to force our politicians to be efficient with money mm -hmm. because they just can't print it to... So they're going to actually have to become serious accountants and money managers rather than just, you know, there's no such thing as money really in the West. No, there isn't. There's debt. And, yeah, and just, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's also why uh, the lion's share, you don't see too many accountants in Congress, but you sure see a hell of a lot of lawyers. Yeah. And, Lawyers are good at spending other people's money and then overbilling everybody in, in the process. So <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, uh, so where are we at? Juliet, uh, Dennis, I want to, where are we at? What are we going to do to uh, turn this ship around? How are we going to identify the people that are really at the bottom of this heartless, soulless morass that we're drugged through. We write about it. I write about it all the time. Uh, people are becoming aware of it. But see, you guys are the ones that have actually lived in some of these things. I haven't. I'm, I'm a reader, okay? I'm a reader. That's where I gain my knowledge from. But the fact is, is you've actually seen it firsthand, both of you. And that's why your accounts of all this are so important. You know, I was going to ask Juliet earlier about, uh, because I kind of, I was a reader my whole life until I went to Bosnia. And then, you know, I had to read the same page seven times after that. So, so to go through something like Juliet went through and then still had the ability to go get a medical degree is, I mean, I can hardly finish a book. Never mind get a medical degree. The, the, well, I, I think that's the advantage of having the multiple identity 
disorder was that uh, I totally forgot everything. I couldn't remember my childhood and and uh, nothing. I mean, nothing. So I, I I went to I started myself at the University of Washington in college. I was 17. I showed up as a freshman like everybody else. Nobody's talking about, you know, what they did in high school anymore. Nobody cares. So I just started a completely new life. Then when my daughter was born and she looked just like me, this little, you know, <laughs> little genetic copy of myself and that triggered started triggering the memories to to go back and and start to painfully put together um what had happened to me but i i the reason they they break your identity apart your dissociative identity they start that with putting you through so much pain so much terror so much suffering that you split and uh I guess girls are better at splitting than boys and they just kept splitting and splitting and splitting. So you wind up with different compartmentalized uh, personalities, which have made it possible for me to do these kinds of things to uh, keep, keep going. Now I'm, I'm almost 75 and I'm like, <laughs> how many I don't, you're writing books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't remember leaving Bosnia. I cannot, that they, all of a sudden I'm in Canada. My goodness. I do not remember. And I've told this to a lot of people. And they say, well, you're probably really tired, which is true. But I've been tired before and I can still remember things. I don't remember getting on the plane. I don't remember Pat, nothing. It's I was there and all of a sudden I'm in Edmonton almost. You, know? you blanked out a lot of really unpleasant things. And I think I'll just leave them where they are. Yeah. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> a lot of people do contact me since since they've read my books and they say, I can't remember my childhood. What should I do? And my advice to them is, you don't remember it for a reason. It's probably unspeakably horrible. You know, so if, if you open that box, be in a safe place with a lot of support. Yeah. Because uh, there's a reason when when the human mind is traumatized to the point where you completely compartmentalize, you know that's that's the process of the multiple identity. You could get into that identity if you worked worked at it, but you don't want to, and you can't well, see a reason to. Julia, you you said this uh, when I first started talking to you about this stuff. Um, you said that it took you nearly twenty years to write Sparky because it was so difficult and you had to work through so many issues to, to get that, uh, get that memory back. Uh, and, and there are still things that you're troubled with. Yeah, it's true. And, and, uh, there were a lot of personal things too, like my, the reaction of people in my family, you know, here I am digging up these things and asking these questions and it, it, it led to mass alienation by other people in my family. Mm -hmm. And um, my parents moved out of the country and would never speak to me again, just because I went to them and, and started asking them questions about who were these people? Why was I at these things? You know, what the heck was going on? And they just picked up and left. And I never saw them again. I never saw my mother again. Wow. And, and so, yeah, there was, there was, it wasn't just, 
past trauma, and I warn people about this, that you go into that, it affects everyone around you. You know, it's not just you going through this. You're dredging up stuff that that um, may have to be dredged up, but it's going to have a big impact on on everyone. And, and uh, there's still a lot of family members that are just furious at me for doing this. And well, others that aren't, others that, that discovered that it had happened to them too. So, yeah. Well, you, you've got a cousin that you, um, you see frequently, and she is also, she was also aware of this, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And, and we, she discovered it later. And I have another cousin who's, who's, uh, been involved in it. And I think they're both listening right now. <laughs> oh, is that right? Uh, well, uh, you know, that the big part about this, Juliet, is is that um, you said in your book repeatedly, you always felt like God was with you. You you refused to to give up your soul. You refused, even though the people around you, other than some of the teachers in your life, the people around you tried to really force you to not even think about God, certainly in your family. But that was the one thing that kind of kept you going, and it was the one thing that held you together when you took off and ended up in uh, Washington, right? Right. Yeah, uh, I always felt, and it feels just like a, a chord right to my heart. I, I always felt that connection. And that's where I would go when I dissociated. I would go off to some magical place, but I knew that it was a place that was connected mm -hmm. to God. Now, I wasn't allowed to, to read the Bible. I grew up unable to read the Bible. I'm still unable. I have to listen to it. And I listen to it over and over and over. I can't read it. I start reading it backwards. And um, wow. It's a very, very strange thing. I had a friend that read it to me from one end to the other, and I could ask questions about what I'd been taught. And yet I don't remember having been taught the satanic Bible, but clearly I was because it's all in there. And I can sit down and write stories from the satanic Bible and not know where they come from. Well, and part of the uh, Satanism is reading backwards, reading um, from the end to the beginning. Uh, that makes a certain amount of sense that if you were raised that way, that that would be the way you would read the Bible. But I don't, I don't remember it. That's, that's, wow. That's, so I, I'm, I admit I'm still flawed. I'm still broken. I'm still, uh, I'm not the one to figure out the overview of this, I can work from inside my my own segments, but uh, I I can't put it together yet. Well, Maybe I can in the future, but I keep trying. Yeah, you're doing much better than most, Dennis. Um, I want to I want to talk to you about your Russian friends. You you've got quite a few of them, from what you tell me. Uh, your contacts. Uh, how do you, uh, well, tell Juliet what uh, your interpretation of all the things that are now happening in Russia from your friends, and then we'll compare them to uh, Juliet's friends in Russia. Well, I'll tell you what, what I was, I lived with a, uh, 
Russian woman for seven years and she was a microbiologist mm-hmm. and I, I met her here. And then I got to know all these Russians who I didn't know that they didn't have, they don't have barbecues in Russia. So I taught, <laughs> but let me tell you, every Russian in Calgary now has a barbecue and then, cause they don't eat steaks like we do. No, they have shashlik and they cook it yeah. in the ground. Oh, right. Or they put it in soup or whatever, but they don't eat a steak on a plate like we do. So they came over one time. I, I must have been, there must have been 20 Russians at my place. And I cooked them barbecue steak for the first time. And I went and got good meat. And uh, within a year, they all had a barbecue. <laughs> and they were taking pictures of it, you know, and saying maybe they can build these back home. So they're taking pictures of the propane bottle and the lines and the <laughs> but my friends, when the when the operation started in the Ukraine, they don't pick up my calls anymore. Really? And uh, I it's just that that mentality that no, we're friends and everything in peacetime, but right now we don't want to talk about things. And so I haven't talked to them since. I mean, we were very, I've known them for years and they're, some of them are pretty well placed. Mm-hmm. And just when that operation started, that was it. I am, mm-hmm. I, I look forward to reconnecting with them when this is finished. Yeah. The, the level of anger in the Russian population is, is almost scary. I mean, they're, they're, they're preparing to like nuke Britain. So it's talked about. It was never talked about when I was there or in anything I can remember. Mm. But um, no, that, I, think, really... I think oh, that sorry. Putin is a very stabilizing, uh, moderating force, keeping that all under control. And the big risk to us is that up comes the next one up is, is a firebrand and they've got the population all worked up and we've been horrible to them. Absolutely horrible. And, and destroying the, the Nord Stream pipeline and all the things that that's just one shooting down the Alexandrov chorus. I mean, that's another, I mean, it just goes on and on and on mm-hmm. and uh, Russia's had it and you get a firebrand in there and we'll have HIMARS in New York. Yeah. Those are the hypersonic missiles. Oh, you- I know what HIMARS are. Yeah. Uh, and the Russians, the tech, Russian technology is insane. Like as a military, you know, if you're going to analyze militaries, you can't be patriotic. Like it's got to be a very sober minded. They have this, we have this, they're building and the Russians have us. I mean, they, they have missiles now that are doing Mach 20. Yeah. And, and flying we, very, very low. Oh, the, yeah. Depending on the, I mean, I know the individual missiles, but they, the, and the tech, so they have this Sarmat and it goes up at Mach 20. And a, after it reaches its apex, it starts to corkscrew into the target. And so you can no longer take that out with another ballistic missile. For one thing, it's very, uh, ballistic missiles are slow usually, and they go by ballistics you know, the rise and fall of the shot. And when you get something corkscrewing, and I heard an American Air Force general from the Joint Chiefs, he was four stars, this was a few years ago, and he said, the only answer we have to a Russian missile is to respond, to fire one back. Mm. But we can't stop theirs. Wow. 
So he basically admitted that any target in America is reachable by the Russians. Hmm. You know, it's, it's it's terrible for us the the way the performance of American weapons in Ukraine has been awful. You know, yes. the Patriot missiles stop anything. The Bradley's uh, troop transports, armored troop transports, just get shot out like ducks in a barrel. Uh, the the Leopard two tanks, the Abrams tanks. The, I mean, they're just they're just being mowed down, and the American drones get jammed. The Russians are able to jam just about everything. So yeah. um, that I I think that was a a terrible mistake to let them. So they've captured every single one of our of our weapons. They've analyzed everything we've got, and we don't know what they have. I mean, we don't have any, do we? Do we have any of their kinjals or? Oh no, they're <laughs> well. We have their kinjals, but they're not really they're blown up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. Well. A... It was ill-conceived. It was it was stupid from the beginning, and sure. the State Department worked on this. I have the documents going back to 1994 when they announced that they were going to conduct these color revolutions in Russia and Ukraine. So it took them 20 years to get to 2014, where they got a civil war going in Ukraine, and then it took them to 2022 to get Russia to respond, and it's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. You know, Russia, uh, Putin, Putin is a little sheepish when he talks about signing the Minsk Accords and why he waited so long, all the way from 2014 to uh, when did he, 2021, to go in because he tried diplomacy. And he admits that, you know, he kind of got taken for a little ride there. He was naive. He called himself naive to sign the Minsk Accords. Well, it, it also takes like eight years to build an army, doesn't it? I mean, to, to, to mm -hmm. fully train an army, and he didn't have the country behind him. Uh, right. He... Well, what I mean, I, I don't know how much into the weeds we can go into strategy here, but what Russia did with what they had was absolutely fantastic. They, I mean, they they invented these. So this is why people were saying, well, Russia is losing. They're not taking any ground. They were, they were, they didn't need to take ground. They were too busy killing the enemy. So they formed these little, they're called BTGs and they're thin on the front line. Only a few guys in a, in a kilometer of, of, of frontage. And then, it, and then the Ukrainians would identify that as a weak point. And what happened was these guys were all basically, uh, artillery, uh, what do we call them? The spotters. Boots. Yeah. Food, spotters, yeah, food, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can call them spotters. Mm -hmm. And what they, as soon as the Ukrainians approached, they would back up and just slam it with artillery. There was a time there, uh, early on in the Bakhmut area, where they were uh, Ukrainians were getting killed at a thousand per day, mm -hmm. and and the Russians are saying, "Hey, what? Why do we have to take anything? You know, first you kill the enemy, then we can have it all." They they also went in and raided fifty bioweapons labs. Oh yeah, I it remember. Was many more than they thought than anybody thought existed. But they got into over fifty of them. They took prisoners. They took all the documentation. They destroyed everything, and that meant they had to bring in microbiologists and virologists because 
they, they had all the blood samples and the, and the uh, it could have been they could have released epidemics you know so that had to be done they also went in to uh, chernobyl and to Kharkov Institute. Those were the two places where it was known that the Ukraine was developing nuclear suitcase bombs. They had fissionable material and they were working on this technology. And you can see, I mean, they went into Kharkov, they blew up the Kharkov Institute. It's nothing now but an 80 foot hole in the ground because they completely destroyed it. And then they left. They took all this evidence to the UN and said, look what they're doing. This is all illegal. They've broken every tree. They're building ethnically based bioweapons. You know, they plan to like destroy our population. And the UN didn't care. The world didn't care. Mm -hmm. All this information is on the the Russian Ministry of Defense website and on their UN website translated into English. But it's it's I mean, Putin was just shocked, really that uh, mm -hmm. nobody cared. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I can understand that. Juliet, um, this is something I, I, I uh, confided in, Dennis, the fact that, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, taking a uh, kind of a, a fact-finding trip to Russia and that I've been invited to be one of the uh, people to go along. And do you want to maybe elaborate on why and i think if you do people will be interested because it's a pretty darn harmless uh <laughs> explanation now maybe i'm just being naive but i i don't think so i trust you enough to tell me the truth that i i believe this is this is very factual and that is because so many of the Russian people, they cannot figure out why we're doing all the things we're doing and why the mainstream media is doing such a lousy job of factually reporting real things. Yeah, I'm I'm in communications with international relations in the Russian Duma and uh, the the public relations department of the ministry, the foreign ministry, and uh, Russia Today, which is mm -hmm. their state, English language, state television. And their work, what I asked them for was that we can come bring, bring our teams, bring our videographies and just go out and talk to people, you know, um, not, not controlled or, or um, just, just have the Russian experience. They're very concerned about that. They, they uh, originally were all for it. And, uh, but the the press in the U.S. has been so negative, and they've been burned a few times. And now they're you know Gonzalo Lira, who is a well known to them, uh, quite a a well known journalist, just was killed in a Ukrainian prison. And so they're they're like they, the last thing they want is for any of us to go there and be harmed. I, I'm telling you, it's the safest place we could ever be in the world right now, is uh, is uh, as the guest of of the Russian government, but maybe not so safe, you know, heading back. But um, so that's that's the hang up there. Uh, I think at some point they'll say, sure, come on. And uh, when they decide it's it's safe to do it and wise to do it. And I've given them the list of, of the journalists that I'm proposing. So they're going through everybody's um, coverage and mm -hmm. we'll see. <laughs> I, yeah. certainly, I certainly hope it happens because um, 
it, it, the coverage that's going on is just is just absurd. I mean, people need to see the church services. People need to see the the uh, what a beautiful city it is. Uh, Scott Ritter was just there. Um, in fact, he's I think he's still there. Mm-hmm. But I think he's back now. I think he's back he, now. Yeah. He got invited to uh, Chechnya and and wound up addressing the, the Chechen troops. Which <laughs> really wow. Yeah, I don't think I'd do that, but. Um, well, when the when the wall no came down, when the wall came down, I had to go to Russia, Ukraine, just because I had to see. I really wondered what these people were like, because you know the the picture they gave us, you know, during the Cold War was terrible, and I thought, you know, I saw it as as Cold War adversaries. But when I went there, the Russians didn't see it that way. They saw me as a World War II ally. They didn't even, and they treated me, I stayed in their houses for free. They'd invite me in. They'd tell me, you know, like in the Crimea, you got to go to Bacchusarai. And they, awesome tour guides. And it was just, it was, it was like small town America, basically. You could do the same. I, I always thought the biggest risk was that they grab you and feed you to death. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the babush the babushka they they like you to eat. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I, I miss I miss Russia. I miss those people. Uh, and I did. I spent a lot of time in Ukraine, and it just breaks my heart to see it just it's demolished. I don't know how they ever recover. I mean, all those fields are mined, and if they're not mined, they're poisoned by all the all the armaments and the gas. I, I, I mean, the dead bodies. I mean, there's just Ukraine lost over five hundred thousand people. They've lost a whole generation. How do they recover? And now they've put out an order: if you don't report to the army within six hours, you're getting arrested. And it's girls well, now. They're putting girls in the Ukrainian uh, army. Pregnant. I don't mean women. No, and 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 the people like Zelensky and Klitschko are are uh, they'll get away to their villas in Florida, but it's it's the Ukrainian people, the people that are so wonderful, you know, the good good Christian family people who are being obliterated and trafficked. I mean, the, every time a father is removed from a family, that family is is uh, probably sold into slavery somewhere. Well, you know, we we talked about that, and it's right at the heart and soul of all this, is that the good people are always the ones that end up losing, and the the power elite, and I always go back to that term, because there literally is a very, very few people in the world that seem to have control of everything, and they manage to get enough um, you know, what I would refer to as useful idiots that are willing to do their bidding for money that uh, they keep getting away with it. And we've got to quit letting that happen because average people, if you look at the the world in general, average people, very few people want to harm anyone else. It's not a natural instinct. You put two people in a room together chances are they're going to try to strike up a conversation. You know, it's not natural for people to try to kill each other. It really isn't. And we've got to quit falling for the crap that they're 
that they're dragging us through because they're convincing us that we have to hate each other. And it just isn't so. Well, you know, very few Americans fought in the American Revolution. <laughs> like, I don't know. Most people said no, by far. I, I don't know the actual numbers, but so you need to Less than 5%. Yeah. So you have this little cadre of people, and maybe that's maybe that's what we're talking about here. Oh, I think so. You know, like talking about organizing against human trafficking, that's just one element. But you start from the grassroots, you probably get five, six percent of the population involved in, in an effort against uh, human trafficking, preventing it and active in communities and rescuing, helping victims. That's all you need. And then it changes the paradigm of all the population. What's it called? The hundredth monkey? Yeah. It gets to the point where so many people in a community believe something, then the rest of them believe it. It's it's a function of, of human psychology. So it, in all the elements and in, in each of the things that have to be done to rebuild the institutions that are come, crumbling down. I mean, this is our opportunity. The guys at the top are miserable, unhappy, horrible mm -hmm twisted, sick people. They hate it that we laugh. They hate it that we dance. They hate it that that uh, human beings love one each other. They can't love. Having no soul, you can't love. So right. uh, there's a lot of reasons that, that they hate us, but I don't think you're right that they have all the power. They have all the, the money. Yeah, but, yeah. Man, we have power. Well, we that's have. true. That's true. But <laughs> yeah. ours is an untapped power. Theirs is a, 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 a power turned on steroids, and that's what we've got to do is learn how to tap the power at our disposal, which is our, our humanness, our soul, our connection with God. Yes. Which is a good reason to look at the Houthis. You know, the Houthis, they're in Yemen. They're per, poor as dirt. There's 22 million people in Yemen, but like 6 million Houthis. They're, they're uh, taking a stance against the UK, the US, because as they see it, their cause to stop the war in Gaza is righteous under God. It's the right thing to do. And because of that, they have this enormous power and they're exercising it. They're using it cleverly. And they're, they're uh, you know, US just dropped 22 bombs on Yemen last night. And the Houthis are out there shooting at Israeli ships again today. They're not going to defeat them because they've got God. I mean, they're they're uh, they see their cause as righteous, and and uh, they're saving Gaza. Maybe they, you know, mm -hmm. I, I hope they do do uh, affect a ceasefire and this craziness stops. The Erdogan is talking about sending two hundred thousand troops to Gaza. I don't know how he would get them there. I see thing is if you know if you're going to fire off a nuke it, it, i would say to the turks that they should be on the israeli border before they know they're there because they're not going to nuke israel is not going to nuke israel but if they find out there's a concentration of 200,000 troops somewhere else uh, so they have to get there fast they have to get there unseen just, I mean, if we want to avoid a nuclear confrontation. Well, they, is, some of the, the, the Houthis are working their way up north. So you've mm -hmm. got the Turk, 
Mark's probably infiltrating towards the south. Houthi is going to the north. Well, you mean by uh, Hezbollah, like Lebanon there? Or are you talking well, about- Hez- Hezbollah is in Lebanon on the northern yeah. border, but the Houthis are from Yemen in the south. And I've seen pictures of their armies are coming up the coast. So they're they're on their way to uh, Gaza to fight okay. with. I didn't Palestine. even know that. Yeah, it's on African news. You have to watch African news. Wow, that's... They're coming by boat, and they figure it'll take them 30 days to get there. Wow. Maybe the Turks are doing the same kind of thing. What a world. (laughs) What a world we're living in. And I'm sorry to say this, we're out of time. We could have gone for another two hours easily. Yeah, I wish we could go out for a beer or something. (laughs) Well, Dennis, uh, we're going to do that uh, because uh, you aren't that far away from me. I mean, you're, uh, oh, I don't know, probably 500 miles as a crow flies from where I'm at. We, We need to do that. And Juliet, of course, we'll do that probably in Rapid City coming up because, uh, you know, they've got another Red Pill Expo coming up in Rapid City. And that's going to be in June. So, man, I, I will show up there. I'll be there. So uh, mm. anyway, uh, thank you again, both of you, for being our guests. But I, I, I just kind of wanted to make this connection because uh, I'm, I'm going to share back and forth. I'll share with both of you contact information because Dennis is uh, one of the most patently honest people I've ever met, Juliet, and he he pretty much says exactly what's on his mind. And uh, I I find that a refreshing thing because, uh, you know, very few people do that in today's world. And uh, Dennis, I'll say the same thing about Juliet. When I first met Juliet, my wife Ingrid was visiting with her at one of the Red Pill Expos. I think it was one in Rapid City uh, several years ago. And uh, Juliet had not spoken on her subject, and she was a little nervous about even bringing up the MK Ultra. She had just, just published her book, uh, gave my wife a copy of it, and said, maybe you want to read this. Well, my wife gave it to me, and I said, holy crap, I need to talk to this lady. This is a really important book. And uh, we ended up, now you've done all kinds of speaking engagements all over the place. Yeah, you got me started. Yeah, (laughs) it's fun. I, I love it. It's stirring up the pot. It really is. And that's what we need to do. Anyway, thank you both for being guests. I will share your uh, information back and forth. I know that uh, Digga Digga Dan is ready to go. I see that he's on uh, online. And so with that said, I want to thank our viewers for joining us. Join us on Tuesday. I've got a gentleman by the name of Joe Connor who's going to be on. And we're going to be talking about the uh, American terrorism that was that happened uh, during the Clinton and the Obama years and the fact that uh, those people put those terrorists, uh, took those terrorists out of prison and gave them presidential pardons. And uh, it's the same people that, you know, Bill Ayers and, and all the rest of these people that have been trying to tear a country apart.
And uh, it's happened right under our own eyes with our own so-called leadership. And so join us on Tuesday for that. Uh, Juliet, uh, Dennis, thank you again. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand.